Evergreen Exchange. I'm here with uh, Louis Gov of GovCal Research. This is the inaugural podcast um, of the Evergreen Exchange. And as a willing guinea pig, the first um, guest is, is a business partner of ours and known probably to a lot of uh, the EVA readers um, as a frequent contributor and the CEO of GovCal. Um, so, Louis, thanks for being here. My pleasure. With uh, all the exciting people in Seattle, you couldn't get anybody better than me. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> no. I don't know what that says about us. But I do want to start with a hard-hitting question out of the gate. I get asked this a lot about you. Is it Louis Gav or Louis Gave or Louis Gave? Gav. Gav. Yeah. You're Louis sticking Gav. with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Louis Gav. Okay, because I feel like I've heard you say multiple versions. No, you're sure? I'm pretty sure. Okay. <laughs> Tell, tell the listeners a little about GovCal. I mean, some people who are listening probably know who GovCal is very well and probably has read your work. Other people might not know who GovCal is or what they do. So I, I started GovCal uh, 20 years ago now with my father, Charles, and Anatole Kovetsky. And at the time, we started the firm as an independent macro research firm. And our main view was that China was going to be a big factor of change for the world, and then most people weren't analyzing China correctly. Remember, this was 20 years ago. And um, that if we got China right, that'd be a big piece of getting the macro picture right. So we opened an office initially in Hong Kong, then uh, then one in Beijing, and very much started uh, yeah, as a macro research firm and signed up a few institutional uh, research clients here and there, um, big sovereign wealth funds, um, big asset management firms, big hedge funds. Um, and that got us going. Um, in 2005, we started a, a money management arm. Um, again, mostly starting with uh, basically pure Asian products. First in Asian equity, then over time we also started a China fixed income. We also started a, a global equity product. Uh, and so today, GAFCAL is really a firm that stands on two legs. Um, one leg and still about two-thirds of the firm sales is um, writing independent research that we sell to institutional investors around the world. And one-third of our sales is managing money for institutional accounts, mostly on Asia. For people that haven't read GovCal Research and they're wondering, okay, what types of insights are you providing to your client base? Are you giving them stock ideas? Are you giving them ideas in regions of the world that they should be investing so the research is very macro, so we, we don't go down into uh, stock-specific ideas, but we will write a lot about currencies, we'll write a lot about uh, um, interest rates, uh, about changes in the yield curve, uh, and yes, we'll talk a lot about the relative attractiveness of, of the big region. So the way we're organized is we, we're actually organized in four separate teams. Uh, we have a, a pretty big China team, and I think most people recognize us uh, for the depth of the work we do in China. Um, we have an Asia X China team, uh, we have a North America team, and we have a Europe team. So when we don't pretend to cover the whole world. Um, we tend to not uh, be super uh, involved in Latin America and Eastern Europe. Um, but if you take Europe, North America, uh, um, sorry, but if you take Europe, North America, Asia, and China, that's roughly you know, 85%, 90% of global GDP. 
and 85 to 90% of global market caps. So that, mm -hmm. that gets you mm -hmm. most of what happens in the world. And that's, and that's great, great research, and I'm sure that people can go to your website if they haven't checked it out before. It's uh, gobcal.com? That's correct. Cool. Um, talk, I had said that the goal of this interview, I didn't tell you really any of the questions I was going to ask you before, but I did tell you that the spirit or the theme would be to be to bounce back and forth kind of who Louis is as a person, and then also talking about some of your thoughts and kind of investing overall, the financial markets, and I think we're going to we're going to cover some some stuff that's that's interesting from a financial perspective and then about you personally. So I thought the first question uh, about you personally would be, tell tell the listeners um, about a, a party game that you play at your house on, on nights where you have lots of people over and host a dinner and um, tell them about the game that you play. Well, it's uh, not, not as much uh, my choice as, uh, as the kid's choice. It's... Uh, it's the, the name game, so everybody has to pretend to be, to, you know, you pick a name. You can be Abraham Lincoln, you can be Hillary Clinton, you can be Donald Duck. Uh, it has to be a name that everybody knows. Um, and then you just go around the table and you have to guess who everybody is. Um, and on this front, I, I tend to be eliminated pretty quickly at these games. Somehow my kids know within a guess or two who, who I am. Um, and this is in spite of me trying to pick names that you know of, of people like that I don't really know. I'll be a Kim Kardashian, or a <laughs> I, I try to make it so that, but somehow they they ping me every time. Well, if if you can't pronounce Kim Kardashian, that might be why they know it's not you. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> who won the last time that you played that game? Wasn't it your son? My seven-year-old son <laughs> came away victorious. That's right, Brady. Um, Tell Wait, not only did he win, didn't he win twice he in a row? Twice in a row, back to back, and he's like, let's play a third time. Everyone's <laughs> like, we want to go home. Um, talk about, you're obviously invested in GobCal. That's been um, a, a raging success since you decided to move the, um, your family there in 1999, and you've now relocated your family to Whistler, but you travel constantly and you're always around the world seeing clients. What other types of businesses are you invested in? Uh, so I have a, a decent size investment uh, in, a, in a French rugby club called the Biarritz Olympique. It's, uh, it used to be one of the big names of, of French rugby. Uh, it's one of the oldest clubs. It's uh, based in the heart of the Basque Country, which is uh, in the Basque Country, there's really three things that matter. Uh, one is the, the Pelote Basque, the game they play throwing a ball against the wall. Uh, the other is the Catholic Church, and the third is, the, uh, is rugby. Uh, it is literally a religion down there. And the club was uh, was going to go bust uh, a couple years ago, and friends of mine called me to uh, rescue it. And I thought it was very sad that this club, which was a historical club, uh, which had been five times French national champion, uh, which had lost a couple finals of the European Cup, uh, I thought it was really sad for it to go under. Um, so... Um, and and so let me jump in and, and, and tell listeners who don't follow rugby in, in Europe... It's a little bit like um, if you think about Major League Baseball having AAA and then the majors, obviously. What's interesting about, from, from what you've explained to me, is that if your rugby team does well as a AAA team, they can do well enough that they become a Major League team again. And then if they do poorly, they go back down. And from what I understand, you're hoping to take them from the AAA level back to the majors? That, that's exactly right. So the way rugby works, uh, both in Britain and in, in uh, well, sorry, in England and in France, is through a relegation promotion system. Uh, in that regard, it's very similar to what you have in, say, the English Premier League for soccer. Uh, so, you know, 
bad teams go down, and going down is a disaster because you lose a lot of TV rights. Um, you still get a little bit of TV money, but as soon as you go down, uh, mm -hmm. you you get into financial dire straits, um, and that's what happened to Biarritz. They they went down and uh, didn't adjust their spending accordingly, and so had had a challenge. So our first challenge when when we came in was to basically stop the bleed. Uh, and, you know, restructuring a business anywhere is tough. Restructuring a business in France, you almost have to be masochistic to, to do that. Um, you know, obviously, you, you have labor laws that are very complicated. Um, and so it's been, uh, it's been a real eye-opening for me, actually, because, you know, I've spent the past 20 years of my life running a business in Hong Kong. Uh, and frankly, that's heaven. Uh, you know, running a business in Hong Kong, you're in a highly capitalist city, fairly minimal regulations, um, and I've gone from heaven to hell uh, mm. because, uh, you know, trying to restructure a business in France, um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's been eye-opening. Um, and How's I think the team doing? We're, um, we're, we're not having, look, this is uh, our first full season, I would say, with new management, new, new leadership, et cetera. Um, Rome wasn't built in a day. Mm. Uh, we're definitely not going up this year. We're, you know, this is a three to five year project, uh, in, in all honesty. And hopefully we'll get up, we'll get back up before then, but there's a lot of work. And you play rugby personally, correct? I do. You have not retired yet? Uh, I think this is my last season. To be <laughs> honest, the, uh, the hurts, the pain is, uh, is just starting to get yeah, harder. And part of it, um, you know, I, I played in Hong Kong for a lot of years. Um, and now that I've moved to Canada, I've been playing with the Squamish Axemen. Uh, and the reality is people in Canada are a whole lot bigger than people in Hong Kong. <laughs> so, so the hits hurt a whole lot more. And um, you should also tell listeners that you and I are, are recent fashion moguls. That's right. So when I moved to Canada, um, I moved into a part of Canada, Whistler, uh, which is, um, frankly, an, an extremely dynamic town. And it struck my wife and I, my wife Kelly and I, that... Uh, there, there might be a lot to do. So Kelly started, my wife, um, a sort of incubator um, where we provide local entrepreneurs um, capital and, you know, not, I wouldn't say expertise, but perhaps some of our uh, accumulated knowledge um, of running different businesses over 20 years. Um, and one of the investments uh, I made and that I think you co-invested with me uh, is a, a new fashion business called Edelhard. They're they're based in Vancouver. It's A E D E L H A R D. That's right. Uh, right. Edelhard, and they're I think and an, it's it's an interesting story. It was um, it's launched by a fellow who used to, was the number six employee at Lululemon. Uh, used to be CEO there and actually played for the same rugby club I played for back in Asia. Um, he also played for Valley uh, back in Hong Kong when he ran Lululemon op his operation out in Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what I find interesting is they make, in essence, men's suits and men's shirts that look just like a suit but are really as comfortable as sweatpants uh, or as comfortable as sweatshirts to, to wear. Um, and in this day and age of sort of, you know, increasingly a mix between casual wear and formal wear, I, you know, we hope it'll, it'll fill a niche quite, that niche quite well. And I, I happen to be wearing a pair of their pants as we speak. 
Yeah, and, and even you can make them look good. And so even I can make them look good. <laughs> and, and, and you still are yet to put on a pair, but you've, you've heard that they're good, and I can attest that they, that they are good. Um, let's, let's talk about um, your background and growing up. Did you always know that, I mean, that you were going to go into finance? I think your dad was, invest, was a investment manager in Europe. When did you kind of realize this is going to be your direction? Uh, it, it took me a while, actually. Um, when, uh, when I was a little kid, I actually wanted to be a Catholic priest. Um, and after that, I wanted to be an army officer. And in fact, when I finished college, I, I did go to military school um, and became a French army officer. And um, I served for a couple years. And while, while I had a tremendous time, you know, running up and down hills, carrying a gun and enjoying every minute of it, um, at that point, I realized I probably couldn't do this for, for the rest of my life. So uh, you became a priest? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I, so uh, I, uh, I sp- spent, uh, you know, sent out my resumes, et cetera. I got a few interviews with different banks. I was quite lucky in that the, the head of Paribas, uh, the, head, sorry, the head of human resources at Paribas, came from the same battalion uh, that I came from. Hmm. Uh, so I got an interview there. I got a job there. Uh, and that really started my career in finance. But uh, even though my dad uh, indeed had you know, done a big career in finance and he'd had uh, his own money management firm that managed about 10 billion um, US dollars, which back in the early 90s sure. was a lot know, of money. A fair, a fair, it's a lot of money today, but back then it was a lot of money. Um, and then they'd sold, he and his partners had sold that firm to, to Cursiter, uh, sorry, that firm that was called Cursiter, they'd sold it to Alliance Capital. Um, even though, even though I'd grew up, grown up with a dad that you know was obviously ways deep in finance, um, when I started work at Paribas, I really felt like I knew nothing, uh, mm-hmm. and I wasn't wrong. Uh, with <laughs> the benefit of hindsight, I really did know nothing. Um, and I, you know, I, like a lot of kids, I had to learn on the job. Um, and so I started in Paris, and then Paribas actually sent me to Asia uh, in '97. Uh, fairly typical for a French bank, they bought an Asian broker and. The transaction closed on June 97, uh, and it was a broker that did about half of its business in Thailand. Um, The transaction closed on June 1st, 97. On July 1st, 97, the Thai bought devalued by about 35%, (laughs) and that was the start of the Asian crisis. So, um, poor timing. To say say poor is really uh, uh, not, not qualifying it right. It was horrible, horrible timing. But as a young guy, I was there. I was sent over there to do the integration of this broker, and it was really eye-opening to see, you know, business implode at this the pace at which business imploded all across Asia during the Asian crisis. Mm-hmm. Was uh, I think it was something pretty good to have early on in your career to see how quickly things can melt down. And of course, since then, I've had other opportunities to see how quickly things can melt down, whether you know, the tech bust of 2000 or, or more recently, the 2008 mortgage crisis. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, um, that was, th- that's been sort of my, my background and how I got into this, into this racket. It's funny what you say. I, I grew up with a dad that's obviously in finance. And then I went to Boston university and studied finance and I show up and I start working. I go into the first research meeting and it sounds like they're speaking Greek, right? It's like, it was unbelievable how little that I I thought I knew, or how little I really knew versus what I thought I knew going in, and and it's a it's a funny transition because or a funny segue because I want to talk about philosophically what's being taught at the universities about finance and, and and specifically two key points and one is around 
um, central bank policy, and one is around um, security analysis or valuation, how you value companies. And, and, and the two things I'm going to pick on are monetary policy and then valuation. And the first one is we were taught very, very early that the Fed's job was really twofold. The, the, I'm talking about the Federal Reserve in the U.S., the central bank. They had two jobs, maintain a level of employment that was satisfactory and control inflation. It now seems, based on all the, you know, everything that you read, everything that they say, that they've expanded the mandate and they no longer just focus on those two things. Or if they do, they kind of always explain that it, well, of course, you know, the reason we care about having good economic growth is because that will lead to full employment or something to that effect. Is this, do you agree that this is just, it's almost a joke? Well, I think you, you said it best uh, about a year ago. When you, you told me, you know, how how do you know a central bank policy has failed? And the answer is they come out and they say we're going to do it twice as long for twice as much. Um, and um, I think that the challenge today when, when you look at central banks um, is that, you know, having gone down the path of extremely low interest rates, um, you've obviously done two things. Um, the, f- the first thing is you've encouraged – Uh, massive amounts of borrowing Um, and that makes it very hard to walk away to to walk back from Uh, once you have very high levels of debt and today we have very high levels of debt at the government level very high levels of debt uh, at the corporate levels uh, record highs on on both sides Um, it makes it very very hard to to raise interest rates we saw it in Japan before Basically, you know, the zero interest rate policies, the negative interest rate policies, it, it's Hotel California. You know, you, you can check out any time you, you like. You can never leave. Um, and so, you know, that becomes your first um, sort of, you know, um, albatross around your neck in that you might want to follow a certain policy. But as we saw this year with, with, with Powell, you might be talking a big game, but the reality is as soon as you start raising interest rates a little bit, the weight of the debt in the system means that, you know, very quickly the economy slows down and slows down more than you probably expected. So So do you agree, though, that – do you agree that they're no longer just purely focused on inflation and employment? Um, I think they are focused on on inflation and employment. And the reality is when you have a huge stock of debt in the system, uh, as we do today, you start raising interest rates a little bit and immediately employment drops and – and so does inflation. Uh, I think this is the story of this year, right? You, st- you know, Powell starts talking a bit hawkish, and immediately leading indicators roll over. Immediately, inflation uh, starts starts to roll over. So that's that. I think is is the first reality. But but the second reality of the monetary policies, you know, if you think in Keynesian terms, the whole idea of low interest rates is to encourage people to not save and to consume today, right? I mean, that's the whole point. So in essence, the idea is. Let's consume tomorrow's growth today. Mm-hmm. Uh, pull forward demand. Yeah, pull forward demand. I think the question we can ask ourselves 10 years in is, um, you know, m- one of the quandaries I have today is we have a situation where we have, by any measure, very low interest rates. We have fairly low oil. Mm-hmm. We have very tight corporate spreads. We have a very stable dollar. For me, those are the four most important prices. Bond yields, spreads, dollar, oil. Um, none of them are flashing warning signals. Sure. All of them are at levels where you would say, hey, low oil, 
low spreads, low interest rates, stable dollar, economic growth globally should be ripping higher today. It should, logically. It's not. It's not. Everywhere you care to look, you see economic growth roll over. For me, the question is, is this simply because we've basically, you know, you know the old saying of that Keynes said, uh, in the long run, we're all, you know, we're all dead. Um, the question is, are we now in the long run? Um, where basically we've brought forward all of the demand, uh, you know, in the past 10 years, we've eaten, we've basically eaten today's growth, and we arrived today, and there's nothing left in, in the box, uh, because we've, you know, whatever growth we we're going to have today, we actually ate it four or five years ago. Um, and, and that, I think, at this point, is the big challenge for central banks, is what do you do now that uh, yield curves are flat or inverted, what do you do now that all across Europe, Japan, et cetera, you have 10 trillion of government debt yielding negative interest rates? Um, and even with that, you can't get growth going. Um, this is the situation we're in, Hotel California. And I think that, that one of the things that readers of, of yours and, and probably our newsletter um, have, have thought a lot about is if there is another crisis and interest rates are still relatively low, and there's not a lot of room for them to cut rates and try to stimulate growth, kind of following their old playbook. Is it possible that they will look to what the Bank of Japan did and actually, you have a, you have a central bank, let them buy bonds, let them buy stocks. Is this something that you think that the U.S. would put on the table in the next crisis? Um, stocks, I don't know. I would say corporate bonds most likely. I think if you look at, um, you know, probably the big risk today for, for for U.S. markets is is actually in the corporate bond space, where you know you've gone basically from three trillion to nine trillion of corporate debt in the space of ten years, um, and a lot of that growth has basically been in one or two notch above junk bonds. Um, mm -hmm. So if you start seeing a, a, a serious economic slowdown, um, basically the junk bond market is going to get overwhelmed. Um, now, while you've had this huge expansion in corporate debt, at the same time. Um, new regulations have made it so that it's almost impossible for investment banks uh, to make a market in a lot of these corporate bonds and warehouse debt. Uh, and I know you and I have talked about this before, but you know, any day where the S&P 500 is down 1% or more, you really can't get any offers uh, if you want to sell a corporate bond. Uh, and I'm not even talking a, a junk bond, just even a sort of a bond from John Deere or Caterpillar or whoever. You just can't get a price from a bank because the banks simply do no, no longer have the ability to warehouse risk. So if ever we do have an economic slowdown um, and you start to see corporate downgrades, which is you know what usually happens in, uh, in, in economic slowdowns, uh, who's going to make the market mm -hmm. knowing that investment banks won't? Um, I think that's when conceptually the Fed could step in and say, look, there's a market failure here. You know, these people need to sell these mm -hmm. bonds, but there's no market. Mm -hmm. So we need to step in because there's a market failure. Now, in a sense, the government will have created this market failure b through these new regulations, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but, you know, it, it'll be a little bit like the 2008 crisis all over again, where, in essence, the, the market, the government helped create the crisis by forcing companies and banks and the mortgage companies to lend to people who shouldn't have been sure. led to. And then when these things blew up, uh, the government said, what have you guys have been doing? Um, sure. And we need to intervene because there's a market failure here. Um, 
I think we'll see the same thing in, in, corporate, in the corporate bond markets eventually. So we'll, we'll agree to disagree on, on the one concept of I just think that you look at the Fed and, and I think that to say that they're focused on inflation and full employment without having one eye on the stock market, I just don't believe it. I mean, their their rhetoric and the way that they talk, I think that that has become something that they factor oh, in. Oh, uh, there's no doubt they have. Um, the and, and again, you saw it this year. Stock market goes down 20% and immediately they, they change the rhetoric. Um, and it's, underst- it's understandable, I think, on, on a few things. First, uh, in the U.S., you're seeing retail sales increasingly correlated to what's happening in the stock market for, for a pretty simple reason. Mm. The stock market as a percentage of GDP in the U.S. has never been this high. So the, you know, the weights, the importance of asset prices um, in consumption um, is more important than ever. And I would say it's only going to get worse from here for a simple reason is the U.S. is now starting to age. Um, so, you know, logically, if you're 35 years old, you shouldn't care what the stock market is. Mm-hmm. You know, you're contributing every month to your 401k uh, and whatever, you know, even actually if the stock market falls, if you're 35 years old, you should be happy. Mm-hmm. Lo- no, no, you should be right. happy because you, be yeah. you can buy more cheaper and yep. you're not going to need that money for 30 years. Yep. Um, if you're 65, if you're 70, and the stock market falls, it's problematic very quickly. Because then you have to adjust your consumption. Exactly. And it's the whole theory of reflexivity, right? And 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 in a society where, and America is now getting older, Mm -hmm. so, you know, you're now in a situation in the U.S. where real estate prices are no longer rising. And so if Mm -hmm. stock prices start to fall at the same time as the population ages, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And especially as more and more people have probably with stocks doing what they've done relative to bonds, they've, it's likely that in a lot of people's portfolios that they've become disproportionately large unless they've been really diligent to, to rebalance them. And I, How many people do you know who do that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not enough. I mean, and in fairness, in fact, most retail investors uh, go the opposite way. Sure. It's, it's a terrible, you know, right. yes, logically, if you start off with a portfolio that's, say, 60% equities, 40% bonds, and two years later, you're 75% equity, 25% bonds because equities have been on a rip-roaring run. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. You should be rebalancing. But the retail participant, more often than not, is like, ooh, equities are great. I should sell my bonds. They're doing nothing for me. And I should go 85%. And our clients say, what, you're taking money out of something that's done well to put into something that's done less well? This doesn't <laughs> make any sense to me. Cut, cut the weeds and water the plants. <laughs> um, so I want to finish one other point around... Um, sort of the things that we learn in traditional academics, and I just, I'm just not sure that they apply anymore. You know, if you were to use, you know, tradi- the, the types of security valuation methods that you studied at Duke or that I studied at Boston University, Amazon shouldn't exist. And yet, here's the most dominant company, maybe in the last hundred years, and it shouldn't exist if you use traditional methods of finance to kind of value them. How do you explain it? Okay, so, you know, going back to the classes you and I both took uh, that led us to believe that we could actually enter finance knowing something, (laughs) really we didn't. Um, You know, we're taught at school that, you know, to value a stock, you look at a stream of discounted, sorry, a stream of future cash flows that you discount by an interest rate on which you tack on a risk premium. And at so that gives you a value, plus on top of that, you have some kind of residual value at the end. So there's four things as investors we have to guess, four things we can possibly get wrong. Uh, 
the stream of future cash flows, the interest rates on which you discount, the risk premium, and the residual value. Um, now, in fairness, this probably the easiest bit of all of this is the interest rates. You know, you can just take the 10-year from the U.S. government, boom, and you can price that in and say, well, you know, that's the best guess of the market today. Why should I second guess that? So you've got that. That, that part is sorted. The risk premium, you can look at history and, you know, the stream of future cash flows is actually, you know, also, well, depending on the business, depending on the, on the business, is can be more or less complicated. Um, I think where the challenge in the markets today is the residual value. Uh, and let me explain why. I think today the perception of the market is we live in an age of accelerated disruption. Uh, in this technological age where businesses are either, it's a complete binary situation where a business will take over the whole world or, or just go nothing. I'll give you a simple example. If you look in the market today, uh, companies such as BP or Shell or Chevron or Exxon uh, or General Motors or Ford uh, are basically given away in the street. Uh, you look at their stream of cash flows, you look at their interest rate, at the interest rates, you look at the risk premium, you think, why are these companies so cheap? And the answer is, the market is putting a zero on their residual value. The view being that in five years, yeah, oil companies make a lot of money today. They're minting cash. Uh, but who cares? In five years' time, we won't need oil wells. In 10 years' time, we won't need oil wells. I, I happen to not believe that, but that's what the market is implying today. Um, meanwhile, yes, in five years' time, in 10 years' time, who will still be driving a Ford pickup? We'll all be driving Tesla pickups. So Tesla is worth $70 billion, and Ford is worthless. Um, and so I think what you're seeing in the market today is the market saying that you have companies like Amazon, companies like Tesla, uh, perhaps companies like WeWork or Uber or Lyft, where, yeah, sure, they don't make much money or even they lose money, but who cares because their residual value is enormous. And, yeah, companies like um, Royal Dutch Shell or Ford um, or John Deere or others make a lot of, make a lot of money, but who cares because in five or ten years' time, these companies will be out of business. Um, for me, it's the same, frankly, kind of mentality that we saw in 1999-2000, uh, um, where everything linked to tech really went through the roof, went to crazy valuations, and everything that wasn't was basically sold down the river. Um, the only way you can logically justify that is say, look, we're in this age of disruption. The residual value of something like General Motors is actually negative because it's, um, uh, it's got these big pension fund liabilities, et cetera. And the residual value of something like Amazon is infinity. Um, I don't believe, happen to believe that, but that's what the market is telling us. But I think that a lot of people use the analogies to 99 and, and today with, with tech companies. And you look at, uh, Amazon is not a tech company that's going to be gone in the next crisis. It's not a company that's, you know, it's a billion-dollar market cap because somebody gave a PowerPoint and, and, yes. and pitched a, you know, a group of investors. It's a real, real company. And what I find fascinating is, you know, they, from the outset, said, we will never, we're not interested in earning a profit. It, it's not something that we care about doing. And to, and, and to see somebody basically say, in what other world would you give money to somebody who's telling you, I, make, I have no plan in making a profit? <laughs> The, uh, no, no, it's, it's indeed very, 
um, challenging. And you're, you're absolutely right. Amazon will, will still be here in five years' time and in 10 years' time, et cetera. Um, if you look at the 99 analogy, um, you know, Microsoft was a 500-plus billion market cap in 99. Um, and then it went back down to a 150 billion market cap. And now, obviously, it's an 800 billion market cap or whatever it is. Um, so you can have a great company, and nobody doubts that Microsoft is, is a great company. Um, but uh, you can be a great company and be overvalued. Uh, Amazon is a great company. The question is, yeah, how do you value it? How do when you it, value when it, exactly. it doesn't, when it doesn't make a profit? Well, I think the, the, the reality is you, you value it uh, you know, basically as an option. Um, and if the option is cheap enough, then that's great. You know, Amazon at whatever it is, 800 billion market cap today, um, is that a cheap enough option? You know, I, 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 I don't I know. Don't know. Um, take Google and Facebook as, as examples. Um, you know, Google, Google and Facebook together today capture more than half of the uh, online advertising but uh, dollar in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and together they capture almost a quarter of the global advertising dollar. That includes, you know, the guys who, who pay me to put their logo on the rugby shirt of, of my club. That includes the ads that you see in the New York Times. So a quarter of the global advertising dollar is going to, to Google and Facebook. Can it grow much from here? Um, you know, you start reaching problems of size, right? And... Um, yeah, these companies are terrific companies. Can they keep growing at 30 40% their earnings as they have for the past decade? Google is obviously trying to do different things to, to, keep, sure. to keep that growth going. Facebook isn't. Facebook is like we're super concentrated, and that's what we do. We do. Um, at some point, you reach your market size, and that's that. I, I totally agree that you, you, know, you start looking at the overall size and asking how, how big can you get, right? The law of large number just catches up with you at some point. But I do think well, it I, On this, sorry to interrupt you. Um, there's two things that catch up with you. The first is indeed the law of large numbers, and with some of these businesses, we, we have to question them. The second thing is we live in a world where governments are very jealous of their power. Mm. Um, and you've seen this time and again in country after country. And when a company gets too big, and you saw it with Microsoft in mm -hmm. 99, 2000, mm -hmm. um, governments will go after them simply because governments hate competition. They don't want, um, they don't want somebody who's more powerful than them. So... And I think you've obviously you're reaching that point with with a lot of these companies here in the U.S. where the government is trying to look at them and say, "Hey, hold on, um, we're going to break you up or we're going to regulate you." Um, and you can say, "Well, you know, these businesses are so profitable they can you know they can deal with the increased regulation cost." Um, but that was the same story for the banks before them. That was you know increased regulation is never yep. great news. Yeah, for sure. And I think that you're you're exactly right that that. While I advocate oftentimes, and I'm always saying, I think that, that the most dynamic, the most interesting things are going on within the tech sector. I do think that you, especially in large cap tech, that if there is a, if there, if, if Microsoft or Amazon, Microsoft was previously under government you know, regulation, if that happens to Amazon, it's going to crush tech as a whole. It's not just going to be one company. That well, I think here, you know, you have to look at, the the different tech models because you've had different tech models for the growth, uh, but some companies like like Facebook um, have grown a lot through acquisitions. Mm -hmm. You know, Facebook bought um, WhatsApp and they bought Instagram and they bought Oculus. Um, what do you think, given everything that we've you know all the troubles Facebook has had in the past twelve months or so, 
uh, if they want to turn around and buy somebody else now, um, it's going to get much harder for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so growing through acquisition, which is when you're very big, you know, one of the things you can do, especially when your share price is fairly high. Sure. You know, if you're trading at 35 times PE, you buy somebody who's trading at 20 times PE, and that's earnings accretive immediately. Um, that path to growth is increasingly becoming close to them. Um, or it's going to be, be much, much harder. Um, so that's your first challenge. Your second challenge, I think, is it's become pretty obvious that in this whole um, you know, trade war between the U.S. and China, uh, the U.S. has decided to make tech one of the big battlefronts. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, and fundamentally, that's, uh, I think that's also quite bearish on tech. Uh, now, tech didn't choose to be the battlefront. The government has decided to make tech the battlefront, to make transfers of technologies, to make... So, you know, let's say you're a company like Apple, and not only do you produce everything in China, but roughly a third of your sales are there, uh, and now you're stuck in the middle of a trade war mm-hmm. uh, that you don't control, um, that, frankly, there's little you can do about, uh, and on which you have very limited li- visibility. Um, that but becomes very you, challenging. But couldn't you view this as the trade wars? If there is a resolution that's that's achieved, I mean, for a, lo- a long time, Bill Gates has complained, Tim Cook has complained that basically China just steals your intellectual property. Yeah. And and couldn't you make a case that for U.S. tech companies, if something better than what has existed for the last twenty years, which is basically nothing, is, I, I, it'd be better? I'm not so sure. First, you know, maintaining intellectual property rights is very challenging, um, and so you can push China to improve on that front, but it doesn't mean that China will. Um, they, they might say they will. Sure. Uh, but, you know, how do you enforce it after that? It, 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 it remains challenging. But secondly, more importantly, you know, Apple, you know, well, Apple in, is a, the poster child, but a lot of these big tech companies have been the biggest winners of globalization. Um, they've, you know, who has benefited more from globalization and from China's arrival on the scene than Apple, Apple, than Apple. I, I, st- I struggle to find anybody who's benefited more than Apple. They get to produce phones. Well, they don't even produce it themselves. They get to outsource it for, for peanuts um, through Foxconn to armies of workers in China. Um, and then they turn around and sell that go- those goods at massive markups to the same Chinese workers. Um, but couldn't you say the same thing, that who's benefited more from the tech boom in the U.S. than China? Um, no, look, and that's the whole point of free trade, right? You know, if only one side benefits, then th- there's no point in doing it. Um, but while you could easily say that, you know, U.S. industry perhaps has, you know, been penalized by the emergence of China, et cetera, I think you'd struggle to say that U.S. tech has been massively penalized by the rise of China. It's... Uh, U.S. industry, yes. U.S. technology, no. Now, look, this is a sector that is now as a biggest slice in the S&P than it's ever had. It's uh, got higher higher profits than it's ever had. And a lot of these profits are linked to the cheap manufacturing they get to do in Asia. I guess I just have a hard time believing that it, it doesn't hurt Apple to have a factory where you produce your phones in China and you pay for those phones to be produced and they make them, and they dis- they do everything that you t- you want, and then they take all those ideas, and at night instead during the day they make another phone, and it looks just like it. Or but but Samsung Samsung did that first, right? So yeah, you could say HTC or Huawei or whoever is making Apple-like phones, but frankly, 
you know, Samsung was there as well, and so was Alcatel. It's it's you know, what's it's not that hard. So you so okay so intellectual property rights not a big deal. I can uh, have you on record for that's that. That's not that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I'm not saying intellectual property rights are, are not a big deal. Um, but you're saying that you can't really enforce them with China, but yet they exist between the U.S. and Europe. The um, well, I'm saying they're very hard to enforce, uh, and I'm saying for sure we should put pressure on China to enforce them more, uh, and for sure China will say, yeah, yeah, of course sure. we'll enforce them more. What happens concretely, I'm less certain. Sure, sure. I agree with that. I think it's going to be hard to get them to change. Um, let's shift gears for a second and talk about your NCA bracket. Your <laughs> listeners are going to judge your ability to predict everything in the future based on this. It's not doing so well. It's not doing so well, <laughs> but I bet your winner's still alive. Yeah, my winner's still alive. Um, so I've got Duke going all the way, as a, you know, I kind of have to. First, because they look pretty good. Um, did you see the game I, yesterday? I, I did see the game yesterday, but look. UCF, you know, at first they had two monster guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like one guy was like 7'2", and another 7'6". Seven 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 no, yeah. one guy 7'2", yeah. and another guy was 7'6". It's like, so, you know, that's hard to go around. Did you see uh, the video or the picture of the 7'6 guy on his knee, and he's the same yeah. height as the other guys? It's yeah. like guards and forwards. <laughs> yeah, so first first there's that. Secondly, you know, Coach Dawkins, uh, I think that's done a, a remarkable job with that program. Mm. Obviously very close to Coach K. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I think that was a, v- a very moving moment for, for, for Coach K, for Coach Dawkins. And those UCF kids played it, you know. That was a great game. They, play, they played out of their, mm-hmm. out of their skins. And, and frankly, so I think Duke was tested. But, you know, th- that's what good teams do as well. Yeah, they come through when they're tested. And maybe, you know, when you lo- looked at that last ball that rebounded, like, all over the Circled, rim except, yeah, yeah. except going in, I, I started to think maybe we're t- it's a team of destiny. Um, so that part of my bracket is okay. The rest, I think, I had Kansas in the Elite Eight, so that didn't work out. Okay. Uh, and I think as I'm long as your winner's still in it, you're doing all right. Yeah. Um, so you and I have something in common. We both work with our fathers. What I think I find Charles to be one of the, the more colorful individuals I've ever met in the investment world. Talk a little bit about him and what your dynamic is like between you and him. So uh, he's... Like, I'm very lucky to have a, a, a dad like Charles for, for several reasons. First, I think he is a, a genuinely original thinker. Um, he, he's a true out-of-the-box thinker. He, he sees things that, that most people don't. Um, and, you know, what he comes up with is genuinely always very far from consensus. You know, sometimes right, obviously sometimes wrong. But he, uh, he, yeah, he, he is a true thinker. Secondly, he's... Uh, He's always been an, an extremely generous guy, uh, generous with his time um, and generous with his money, uh, generous just all around. Um, and, you know, I've always thought Charles was sort of a, a, a missed, uh, he should have been a university teacher, university professor. Um, first, he's, you know, he's got the sort of Adam Smith absent-mindedness uh, like, sort of like he professor. loses his wallet? Yeah, yeah. Actually, well, yeah, little story. First time I think he came to visit you before we even got in business together, first time he came to Evergreen, um, yeah, I think he, sh- he showed up and said, oh, by the way, can I borrow 50 bucks because I lost my wallet. <laughs> I need <laughs> I someone need to pay for the taxi. <laughs> I need money for the taxi. Um, and, you know, that I'd love to say that's been a unique occurrence, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it hasn't. So he does have that absent-minded professor thing, thing going. 
um, which can make you know running a business sometime uh, infuriating is the wrong word, but somewhat frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, when, uh, but you know, the flip side of that is a sort of creativity and, and a genius that, that you don't find elsewhere. So, and he's not a nerd. He was a great tennis player, right? I don't In know. He's day. not a nerd at all. He was actually a very good athlete. He, uh, no, no, he was uh, an extremely, extremely good tennis player. He was in the top 50 players in France. Um, and to your point and about his outside the box thinking, he first combined the, the sport of tennis and cigar smoking, right? Didn't yeah, he used to smoke a, a cigar and play tennis at the same time? They used to frustrate the hell out of me. So, <laughs> he, uh, he, you know, I was I played a lot of tennis growing up, uh, partly because my dad played a lot of tennis, and um, I I was a, never a great player. I could hit the ball around, um, but he would oh yeah he would play with me and smoke a cigar at the same time and beat me, <laughs> well into my well into my early twenties, which used to drive me absolutely nuts. Okay, getting back to investing, I th- one of the things that has sort of ETFs have, have fueled the, the flames, if you will, that active investing is dead. Trying to pick out this stock versus that stock is just stupid. You should just buy the S&P or buy some ETF and never think about it again. And frankly, if you've looked at the track record of how active managers have done during the last bull market, a lot haven't done that well, and and so there's, I think that there's this, there's a lot of people that are talking that, that basically we're all going to own ETFs, and that's going to be the way of the world, and being an active investor is basically dead. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Um, look, I think, first of all, there's three different kinds of ETFs. Um, you have your fixed income ETFs, your equities ETF, and your, and your commodity ETFs. Um, the uh, the Finks think of the three the Finks income ETFs are most likely the dumbest of the three, um, if only because the way Finks income indices are built is, in essence, the more a company or a country borrows, the bigger weight it's going to be in the index. So you know, early on in my career, Argentina went bust um, in two thousand one, and I think when it went bust, if I if I'm quoting from memory, but it was roughly thirty percent of the emerging market bond index. And the reason for that was that Argentina was, of course, a massive borrower. Um, and the more Argentina borrowed, the bigger it became a, as a part of the benchmark, and the higher the interest rate. So it was almost impossible for anybody who was benchmarked to underweight Argentina because the interest rate was high. And so it, you know, you, you basically were taking negative uh, basis risk. Um, and of course, when Argentina went bust, you know, you you lost a lot of money. So, you know, if you're a fixed income investor, your, your first job is to say, okay, how sustainable is this debt? Am I going to get my money back? Uh, and because it's not the return on, on, in, off, on capital, it's first and foremost the return off capital. And so that's why I think, you know, for the fixed income part of the portfolios, you really have to do your homework. Uh, and I don't think there's any going around. I'd love to say it's an easy solution, go out and buy a, a bond ETF, but there is no solution uh, that avoids hard work, mm-hmm. that avoids, you know, like you guys do at Evergreen. Um, if you want an income part of your portfolio, you either need to do your, the work yourself or you need to outsource it to somebody to, to do the work. You can't outsource it to a benchmark and you can't outsource it to the broader wisdom of the market because what you're going to end up with is a portfolio dominated by the guys who borrow the most, sure. uh, which is not not what you want. So, so that's your first part of ETF. So I'd say, you know, when, when you tell me in the future we'll do nothing but ETFs, 
Um, if you think in the future you need an income part to your portfolio, then you still can't do that with ETF. Mm -hmm. You still need a professional manager or you need to roll up your sleeves and do it yourself. So that's that's option. That's second thing is, you know, commodity ETFs. Um, and here, um, you know, I think history has shown that commodity ETFs uh, are just a sucker's game. Uh, they work for very short periods of time, but if you want to play a short bounce in, in, a, in a commodity, but more often than not, what ends up happening, uh, you know, whether you look at the soft commodity ETFs or the oil ETFs, et cetera, is that the professional traders just pick the role of the, it, it is, because most of these commodity ETFs play through the futures game. Yes. And you everybody knows erosion. that. Yeah. Well, at first you have the erosion, and but everybody, all the traders know, oh, you know, the oil ETF is coming in on Wednesday for the for the role and they just get the pocket picked. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just like an, an, an easy target. So commodity ETFs also make very little sense. Um, and the, and then that brings you to the third batch, the, the, the equity ETF, um, where, you know, conceptually, yes, you're right. Uh, a lot of these in a bull market have done better than active managers um, for a very simple reason, first and foremost. When you buy an active manager, in essence, what you're doing is buying an insurance policy. Uh, you're buying an insurance policy against a bear market. What you're doing when you buy an active manager, uh, more often than not, is just like you buy a fire insurance for your house and, and you hope not to have to use it. Um, the, when you buy an active manager, you're, you're, you're paying for the protection that, that somebody during a bear market will say, you know what, this doesn't smell right. We need to reduce the risk. We need to do this. We need to do this. We need to do that. Position the portfolio differently mm -hmm. to weather to weather the. Uh, sure. So today, yes, you know, ten years into a bull market, everybody says, "Why? Who needs an active manager?" Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people were saying that in March two thousand nine, uh, yeah. when the S and P five hundred was down forty five percent. Just like you know, today you might think, "Well, you know what? It's been ten years and my house hasn't burnt down. Why should I need fire insurance for my house?" Um, and you know maybe you get away with it, maybe you don't. Um, so so active investing is not dead. Well, well, I'll go one step further. Okay. Um, for me, uh, passive investing in equities is like saying socialism works better than capitalism, um, because when you passive invest, in essence, you allocate capital to whoever's biggest. Sure. So today, you allocate capital, the marginal dollar of, of investment through. Uh, Passive investing will go to Amazon, will go to Microsoft, Microsoft sure. etc. Um, and that was the whole premise that socialism was based on. Uh, in socialism, you give capital to the big companies. You don't give capital to whoever marginally is going to allocate it the, the more efficiently. So if we move to a world where more and more money is invested, um, the what's going to end up is invested passively. What's going to end up is the average person will get the average return. And that average return will be much lower mm -hmm. than where what it should have been historically. Um, if you act actively manage money and you say, okay, where is my marginal dollar going to get the biggest bang for the buck? Some will get it right, some will get it wrong. But the system mm -hmm. will end up with higher active returns. Sure. So logically, you know, with this in mind, the regulators should be pushing back against uh, indexation. Mm -hmm. They should be pushing back against ETFs. Of course, the regulators are going exactly the opposite way. Regulators are pushing everybody to go into index funds. Regulators are pushing all around the world, pushing every everybody to just buy the benchmarks because if you're a regulator, that's your job done. Right. You know, it's like, you know, nobody's going to complain about 
if every private investor just buys the benchmark, sure. there's no scandals, there's no <laughs> Madoffs, there's no this, there's no that. For the regulator, it makes the job a whole lot easier. Yeah. So they'd rather do that, even at a cost of much lower returns for everybody. So the regulators wouldn't mind killing active investing and making it dead. And speaking of making it dead and being killed, didn't you take me alpine riding in Whistler? And for listeners that don't know what this is, Louie will explain it. And if you're ever up in Whistler, um, you can uh, look up alpineriding.com and go do it. It's it's fun if you're not me. <laughs> so, so alpine riding is one of um, the companies that um, um, we've uh, seeded in um, – in, in Whistler, um, and basically the best way to describe it is to think, if you've ever gone downhill mountain biking, uh, you know that downhill mountain, and me- Whistler is the mecca of downhill mountain biking, uh, you know that downhill mountain biking can be quite dangerous. Um, the injury rate is actually something like 10 times the rate of, uh, the injury rate of skiing. Hmm. Um, partly because, of course, when you fall, you fall on hard, much harder stuff than on snow, um, but one of the most common injuries in downhill mountain biking is uh, you go OTB, which means over the bar. Um, so, you know, you have to brake violently and you basically fly over your bike and you either land on your head and can get a concussion or you land on your shoulders and can get a broken collarbone. Uh, either way, an unpleasant experience and, and a, a crappy way to spend your holiday. Um, so what you saw facing this, this constraint in France starting about five, six, seven years ago um, you start to see downhill scooters. So they look just like downhill mountain bikes. They've got the same uh, suspensions. They've got the same wheels. But instead of sitting on a seat, you're actually basically standing on a little platform. Um, this means that your center of gravity is much lower, and you basically get a workout on your core. Um, and it, it becomes almost impossible to fall unless you're called Tyler Hay. Uh, so My core <laughs> is apparently very weak. <laughs> yeah. So Tyler, uh, our kids, and I all went down um, uh, from the top of Whistler Mountain to the bottom on, on these downhill mountain scooters. And as we went down, I told Tyler, don't worry, uh, n- nobody's fallen yet. No, it's, it's, almost, it's almost impossible to fall on these things. Uh, and I think, Tyler, you, you wiped out, what, three times? Three times, and yeah. my son wiped out, I think, four. So I clipped him by one. <laughs> yeah. And there, you're just, you're the, the whole God family who basically mountain bikes all summer is like, what's wrong with these people, Dad? <laughs> they keep falling off these things. What the hell are they doing? That's right. So And, and for once, I'm glad I didn't take your advice because you said my wife would do great on one. That would have been <laughs> the end of our marriage. So uh, finally listening to you, not listening to you, worked for once. Yeah. So, so, so sorry about that. <laughs> but any, anybody else uh, feel definitely free to who, who comes by Whistler. Uh, but so this company Alpine Riding um, is both a producer and a, a tour operator of, of these downhill scooters, and hopefully they're going to start. Uh, you're going to see them across a lot of North American resorts starting this summer. Cool. Um, it's really, really, really fun. It is super fun, and you know you didn't hurt yourself unless you have a weak core. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Speaking, you you. You talked about socialism um, and, and how the indexes are a little bit like socialistic in their structure. But, I mean, let's be serious about it for a second. Income inequality is becoming a real issue. It's it's certainly becoming an issue here in the U.S. I would imagine that, you know, in France it's, it's as big of an issue, China less so, but possibly down the road. Talk about... How do, how do we solve this? Do, are we going to go to, in the U.S., are we going to go to a, some type of guaranteed income? Are we going to go to a tax system that's incredibly predatory for, for really, really wealthy people? I mean, 
where does to me this is a big deal because I think that the one thing that makes the U.S. great and makes capitalism great is that if you have a really good idea and you're a really smart person and you decide that you, you're going to take this idea and you want to run with it, what's the greatest place to go do it? And I think for a long time people have said the U.S. And my biggest fear is when the answer is a different country besides the U.S. And So I worry a lot about predatory taxing and, and, this, and, and people using the income inequality debate to political means. So it's a huge topic, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I think there's, there's two different issues, actually, be behind, behind that. One of them is indeed income inequality, um, and that what you see today in the U.S. is executives at companies, at public companies, that get paid you know, thousands of times the median salary um, uh, of their average worker. Um, and that's something that's you know, fairly new over the past 20 years or so. It, it, that gap didn't used to be that big. So, so that's one issue. Uh, and then the other issue is, um, you know, the, the divergence, not of income, but of assets. Mm. Um, and the div so I'll start off with the divergence of assets. So basically what you've had today, and I think why the, inc the income inequality is now such an, a problem, is that because of the zero interest rate policies, what we've done is we've bid up the prices of all of our assets. Mm. Um, you know, going back to our finance lessons, stream of, of future earnings is counted by an interest rate on which you tack on a risk premium and uh, you add the residual value. Well, today we have governments that tell us we won't let companies go bust, so that's your risk premium coming way down, and we'll keep interest rates at zero. So with that, the price of assets goes absolutely through the roof, and we've seen it in equity markets and we've seen it in real estate. So the zero interest rate, what the zero interest rates policies have done is really create a massive distortion in our economies between people who own assets and are therefore very wealthy on paper and people who don't own assets and now see the price of these assets get out of reach. So, you know, you're a young guy starting to work in Seattle or starting to work in New York or starting to work in Boston and you think, darn, I'll never be able to buy an apartment. I'll never mm -hmm. be. It's just gone too far. Um, I'll never be able to put, pull together the deposit to do it. So, so that's you, the first culprit for, for this sort of societal problem that we face is the zero interest rate policies. Um, the second, I think, to be honest, of the, the massive divergence between the pay of CEOs and the average worker mm. is a very U.S. problem. Uh, mm. You don't find that problem in Britain. You don't find that problem in France. You don't find that problem in, in most of the countries. Um, and here, to be honest, I think it's U.S. boards not doing their jobs, where you have you know guys who get paid uh, absolute fortunes for doing fairly mediocre jobs. Now I know that the whole logic is we want to hire the best, and you know those are those other salaries, etc. But the reality is, you know, that talent bench is actually quite deep. I think um, to and here again, you come back to I think it's also linked to the, to the negative interest rate policy, in that when you put interest rates at zero or negative rate and you push up the price, the asset price through the roof. It's easy for any CEO to say, "Oh, look at me! Look at what I did! You know, I've got the share price to go up 100% over the next over the past 10 years. Um, I should get paid a lot of money." Um, and so you see this time and time again in the U.S. And to be honest, I'm I'm not quite sure how how you get out of it. Um, the you know maybe it it does go through a period of predatory taxing and etc. Now. And it'll be a painful period, 
The beauty about the U.S. system is that it has many ways to self-adjust and many ways to correct itself. Um, As Churchill said, the great thing about the U.S. is they'll always come to the right solution. Having tried all others first, (laughs) uh, they'll they'll come to the right solution in the end. So, you know, when it comes to income inequality, look, I do believe that um, it, it is undeniably a societal problem that will have a political cost. I would throw a different spin on it. I would say that technology is causing an income inequality problem. And where I'm going with that is, you think about what it used to take to build a billion dollar company, right? First, you'd have to go out and you'd have to buy land, hire workers, build product. You have to, I mean, it'd take a long time. I mean, that stuff doesn't happen you kind of walk before you run, yep. and, and it took a lot of capital, it took a lot of growth, it took people, and now you have 50 guys in a garage in Silicon Valley that write code and, and for two years, and then they sell to sell Instagram to Facebook for a billion dollars or whatever they sold yep. it for. The ability t- for these people to make money through ideas, it's capitalism without capital, right? It is, and you know... And, that's got to be a huge problem because it, it, I think to society it feels unfair. Look at what they did. What did they do? How much money did – how many workers did they – like th- there's something weird about the way that, that money's being made now. So it's – I don't think it's weird. You know, I wrote a book about this back in 2005 called Our Brave New World. I updated it in 2012 with a book called Too Different for Comfort. Um, and I touched a lot on, on these themes. Um, but to your point, it used to be that, you know – so I went, I went through school in France. So, you know, in France, you get indoctrinated in Marxist doctrine. Uh, if, you're, <laughs> if you're a good Marxist, you think, look, there's three factors of production, land, labor, capital. Um, and it's the interaction of these three that, you know, uh, basically generate economic growth, et cetera. Um, but now in this day and age, there's a fourth one, uh, and that's knowledge. Um, and indeed, to, you know, you, to... Uh, to use your example of Instagram. Um, Knowledge today uh, Mm -hmm. is is a new part of the equation, Mm -hmm. which completely turns economics on its head, Mm -hmm. partly because, you know, land, labor, and capital are both uh, constrained, right? There's only so much land that you can use. There's only so much capital that you can use. There's only so much labor that, that you can use. And that's why economics was called the dismal science, because it was all about dealing with Factors that were, yeah, it was the science of scarcity. But not only is knowledge not scarce, um, it also can feed upon itself, right? You know, I can be a smart guy if I'm all by myself doing my own thing. uh, uh, You know, it it might not be that great. And all of a sudden, you put me in front, in in the middle of those 49 other guys that you talk about in the Silicon Valley. And perhaps, you know, all of a sudden, the little knowledge I have gets, gets grown much faster. And then uh, you compound that with the fact that, that data is aggregate. I mean, remember when we used to think that you got a lot of knowledge if you had the Encyclopedia Britannica in your yeah, house, yeah. right? And now it's like you got it in you, your pocket. <laughs> you can you have it in your pocket, and you can spe- and you can find people who around the world are, are specializing and thinking about the same things that you want, and you can build upon each other. And that's one of the weird one of the one of really weird things about the world that we live in today. But uh, it, it's it's not only that; it goes much further uh, as part of this. So, you know, you've mentioned technology. The, o- the other obvious one is globalization, where, you know, l- look at mm-hmm. a simple example. Um, you know, if you're truly outstanding in something, all of your market, 
which always used to be local, yeah. is now global very quickly, right? So you take Ronaldo, um, who moved from Cristiano Ronaldo, who used to be at Real Madrid, and Juventus sold, you know, bought him for crazy amounts of money. Um, turns out that basically Juventus made almost the entire transfer fee on the sale of shirts, because <laughs> you know n all of a sudden Ronaldo moves from Real Madrid to Juventus, and of course all the Juventus fans buy buy the shirts, but also you have like you know however many hundred thousands of people in China, India, Korea, etc. that that buy this this guy's shirt, um, and that pays for the transfer fee. And uh, it's fascinating to me because you think about if you're the best chef in your village in the 1800s, guess what that meant. That meant that you had people coming in all the time. If you were the best chef in the 1900s, guess what that meant? You might have a few restaurants around town. If you're a best, if you're the best chef in the late 2000s, maybe you were savvy enough to have like you know Nobu in Hong Kong, yeah. Nobu in New York. You know you could have a franchise. And now, you could, if you're the best chef in the world, you might never leave your kitchen, and you can sit there and hand out cooking lessons and and, and teach and, and I mean. The ways to make money yeah, today. You, 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 you do web classes, you do oh. this, that, and the other. Imagine, to put things in perspective, you know, with this Ronaldo experience, imagine if today you were Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael Jordan made a lot of money sure. back when he was playing. If he was Michael Jordan today, he'd make one more zero. <laughs> sure. Just, just with the sale of sh Michael Jordan shirts in China. Sure, sure. Or, or the sale of Michael Jordan shoes in China today, if he was playing today. But it's also a little bit, I think it's a little bit weird to in today's world when you think about access to information, okay? Let me give you this analogy. If, like, you set up your phone and you put on all the apps that you like, right? You have, you follow the people on Instagram that you like. You read the, web, you go to the websites, you, you have logins or you subscribe to the things that you like, right? You read Fox News if you're a Republican, you watch MSNBC if you're, if you're a Democrat or whatever. Does it strike you at all that the world's allowing people to become more and more focused and not aware of, of, of other opinions or other, I mean, it's, it's really easy to reinforce what, what you like now. Well, there's, there's no doubt. Um, so in, increasingly you're siloed and that's why I think you, you have to make, and that's the big downside of social media. So you have to make conscious efforts to, to come out of your silos to, to, to uh, otherwise, it is. It is too much. It is much too easy. You know, social media is there to, to feed. You know, to make you feel good, um, and so it's it's all too easy to to just you know stay in your comfort zone. Uh, it's a little and, true and, and not grow. It's a little true in our world too. Go go go. Try this. Go type bullish report on Amazon. Guess what? You're gonna find a news article. Go type bearish report on Amazon. You're going to find a news article. So you wake up that morning and you want something that says that re that confirms your opinion. You'll find it. You yep. want something that confirms you as bearish. It's out there. It's sort of a strange. strange and and dynamic. and you're absolutely right. And you know I think and that comes back to something I often say, the the role of money managers, our role as money managers, whether you know us at Gafcal, you here at Evergreen, our role isn't as much to forecast the future. Of course, you know, we need to look ahead and, and think of the potential pitfalls, et cetera. Um, it's not as much to forecast as to adapt. Uh, our role is, is to adapt. And uh, indeed, in, in that respect, if you get too siloed, if you get too um, confident and, um, and all you'd look for is the, basically the same background noise that reinforces your own convictions, it makes it more challenging to adapt. Um, and mm -hmm. And so our, you know, our jobs as money managers is to build portfolios 
that can obviously withstand different kinds of environments, number one, and to adapt these portfolios as the environment changes. Whether it changes in a way that we thought it would or changes in a different mm -hmm. way, either way we have to adapt. You mentioned a book that you wrote in 2005. You're also writing a book that's out now. Yep. What's it about? So it's written. Um, it's can people buy it? People can buy it on Amazon. On Amazon. Uh, it's uh, called Clash of Empires. Um, not only can people buy it, but people really should buy it. Um, the book is basically about the rise of China, uh, obviously, as uh, a growing empire. Uh, and when I say empire, I don't mean that China is going to go out and invade Pakistan or Indonesia or South Korea or whoever. Um, but that the history of every empire is first and foremost a road-building exercise. Um, you know, empires build roads to bring in commodities cheaper to the, to the heartland and push out finished goods to the outer realms. And when you listen and when you see everything that China's been doing in recent years, um, you know, the One Belt, One Road program, the Silk Road Fund, uh, the building of canals, of telecom lines, et cetera, it is very much an imperial rollout. Now, obviously, you can't have an empire on somebody else's dime. Um, Historically, all of Asian trade has been denominated in U.S. dollars. All of Asia's savings were denominated in U.S. dollars. All of Asia's working capital was kept in U.S. dollars. But as China rolls out this huge infrastructure project, obviously the trade is starting to shift from U.S. dollars to renminbi. The savings are starting to shift from renminbi from U.S. dollar to renminbi. Um, and so, as you start to see the rise of the renminbi as a trade currency, as a reserve currency, I think this has massive macro implications for exchange rates, for interest rates, for geopolitics, for commodity prices, for a number of things, uh, all of which I review in the book. Cool. Um, you've obviously spent a lot of time in China. When you look forward, you know, it's, it's fascinating because when you went there, you, you, you basically said that, that you talked about Apple being a huge beneficiary. China used to be the place that you went when you're looking for somebody who could produce your good at the cheapest cost. Absolutely. That's for sure the history of the well, last 20 years. It, it wasn't as much at the cheapest cost, but China offered something very unique. It offered first world infrastructure at third world prices. Because you can go today to Bangladesh or Indonesia or wherever and get much cheaper price mm -hmm. than you could in China. You know, if you're, let's say, Walmart, and you go into Bangladesh and you say, hey, I need you to produce, I don't know, 500,000 white t-shirts for me. Um, you can get them at a cheaper price in, in Bangladesh. But the reason very often you still use China is, you know, you don't know if when you come back in six weeks' time if the T-shirts in Bangladesh will be ready or not. In China, you know they'll be ready. In Bangladesh, you might have had strikes. You might have had power outages. You might have had the cotton not coming into the port mm -hmm. for whatever reasons. Mm -hmm. China was unique and is still unique in that it offered first-world infrastructure at third-world prices. But no are those prices still third-world? Not anymore. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's definitely not as cheap as it used to be. And that's why you see... You know, I would say the lower value-added stuff, the things like textiles, mm -hmm. shoes, uh, et cetera, is increasingly moving to Bangladesh, to Bangladesh, to Vietnam, yeah. uh, et cetera. Um, so, what is China? What is that's what I was going to go with this. Where where does the next twenty years? What does China look like twenty years from now? Um, so that's a, that's a very important question. You know, does China continue to evolve and basically become more of a first-world nation? And mm -hmm. you know, when you travel around Beijing and Shanghai, it already feels that way. Mm -hmm. uh, or does it uh, get stuck in the sort of middle income trap that a lot of countries like, say, Brazil or Malaysia have, have been stuck in? Um, I think one, one 
huge uh, question mark over China's development path is the fact that China is now getting old, um, mm -hmm. and that demographically, you know, the China will now be facing serious headwinds, which will curtail its growth going forward. Um, I will, the, will the one-child policy catch up with them? Oh, it's already catching up. It's uh, so they've already abandoned it. Uh, but the problem with China now is the number of women and age-bearing uh, in um, in childbearing age uh, is already falling. Right. So, you know, without women in childbearing age, it's hard to have kids. <laughs> um, and so, with that, you know, the, you know, China demographically is already in a bad spot and. It's going to take a generation before that, before if it ever turns around. Uh, the reality is, they've gotten rid of the one-child policy, but you've barely m seen a pickup in 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 births for a few reasons. First, culturally, it's not become accepted that you just have one child. Right. And secondly, you know, it's just living spaces. Uh, what happens in China, you know, in the past 30 years, the country's evolved from being basically peasants who lived on farms, where you wanted to have lots of kids because to help out, to help out and you you know, throw them out, out outside and let them sort themselves out to a country that now mostly lives in cities um, and in cities in sort of 800 square feet apartments. So, and this and a world <laughs> where just in general, people are having less kids, less kids. You know, if you go to New York or to mm -hmm. here in Seattle, you know, how many people who live inside the city, like, you know, true urbanites, how many kids do they have? One, maybe two. Yeah. Um, you don't see a lot of people with four or five kids in uh, inside of cities. Uh, and so as China urbanizes, and partly, you know, it's women work. Women don't want to have, like, four sure. or five kids anymore. They want to have one, two. So, so China's there as well, just like just like a lot of places. Well, Louis, I think that um, you and I could sit here and, and talk for longer than most people could listen. Um, but I, I do think that hopefully people enjoyed listening to us for the – for the first time on, on our podcast. And um, if this thing doesn't uh, turn out to be a colossal failure, I would assume <laughs> that you'd be a return guest. And um, I want to say thank you for, for coming and doing it. Absolutely my pleasure. Okay, cool. Thanks. Thank you.